Would you pray with me, please? Come, O fount of every blessing, and tune our hearts to sing your praise. Feed us with your word, that it may empower us, embolden us, give us courage, that we may live into an abundance yet unforeseen. Amen. Next Sunday is Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, the way we celebrate it in this church and many other churches. It is true, I believe, to the three traditions of which United Parish is a part, American Baptists, the Congregationalists, United Church of Christ, and the United Methodists. Now, we have been keeping the communion table up here during Lent that we might have it as a way to receive our gifts on the table every Sunday. You will notice, for those of you who know this table, given in honor of the ministry of Pat Coughlin, that it says, this do in remembrance of me, and we've been turning it around so that we up here might remember to do this in remembrance of Christ. There have also been several different traditions of communion that people have informed me about because I have to confess I've only served communion one way, and it's the way we've been doing it for the past five months. But in this church, there's been a tradition of passing communion, that you might have a moment at your place, which I believe comes from the Baptist tradition, possibly the congregational tradition. And there's also been a tradition of coming up here to the kneeling rail like St. Mark's Methodist used to do. I'm told by one of our resident Methodists that this is a very high church Methodist way to do things, that she's never been in a Methodist church where they did that. So we still have some sorting out to do about how we take the common meal. And that's a conversation I want to have with you as we go into exalting and worship in the future. But I began imagining about this table and what might happen next week. And I thought to myself, what if a thousand people showed up unannounced? Now, this sanctuary seats about 650, and right now you're about 170 to 200. You can pause and think about that for a moment. But imagine if a thousand people came up and crowded us out. Say if the ones with kids came early and went up to our spacious second floor for church school and we had five times the number of children. Now we have 70 children enrolled in church school, which is a good number for a church our size. But imagine, Lisa, if that happened. She's shaking her head because they would be scrambling up there. Some Sundays she doesn't have enough teachers to teach church school. Sometimes she's still trying to find enough. I imagine she would grab you and you and me and a few other people to come up there and just help out to find the colored paper, to find the scripture verse. Even those kids who want to sing might join the carolers. We would be scrambling there. I can imagine what might happen in worship because I tell you, in communion, we have only been using one loaf of bread. Last week, our last uh, communion Sunday, we almost ran out. We were getting smaller and smaller pieces as we went along. I would probably say, John, could you go over to Trader Joe's and get a couple of loaves, make sure it tears easily and has a good crumb on it. And I might say to Paul, would you mind and get more Welch's grape juice over at Stop and Shop? And then I'd say, we'll reimburse you later and we'd have a little thing about that going on. And then I imagine Alan or Jock might come up to me and say, we have run out of orders of worship. What do we do? And we would try to go use the Rico in there and it would jam as it inevitably does. And we would run out of orders of worship. And I would say, that's okay, because we don't, a lot of you don't even read it anyway, so we would just announce it. We'd just say, now we're going to do a song, now we're going to do a prayer. We would still have worship. 
And then I imagine coffee hour, we might scramble. We might try to go make another urn. We might try to get some more goodies. I might send John back out or Kathy or someone else to get some goodies at Trader Joe's so we'd have enough food to feed all these guests. But I imagine we would figure it out. And after it was over, we'd all take a deep sigh. And some of us would say, wow, I'm glad that's over. And some of us would say, whew, I'm exhausted. And some of us would say, God, I wish every Sunday were like that. <laughs> I think it was a lot like that when Jesus stepped off the boat onto the shore and saw all these people running after them, after the disciples. I think they hadn't expected this. It's a very important story in the early Christian tradition. It is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. And they're pretty close to the same account. They have slight differences. So it was very important to the early church, and it is a premonition of what we do when we have communion. The same four verbs are there that are in communion in all four accounts. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. That's what we do when we take the offering every week. We take the offering, we bless it, we divvy it up into our budget, which we're gonna talk about this afternoon in our budget and stewardship ministry meeting, and then we distribute it. That's what we do in church. We studied this this week in our Lenten groups, and the phrase that really stuck out to me was, and when he looked at them, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. It's the same thing Moses said when he came down from Sinai. It's the same thing that Elisha and Micaiah and Ezekiel and some other prophets said when they looked at the Israelites, people who felt lost in life and needed some bearing, and they needed to be fed, not only physically, with a good coffee hour, with plenty of healthy treats, not just white sugar and white flour, but really nourishing food, and they needed the bread of some good news. I imagine we all have times in our lives when we need some good news, when we need to hear that God is still around and still cares and wants to gather us and feed us and help us out. Now, the bigger question for us might be, why did they come? It's clear in the story in the Gospels that they came because Jesus' reputation was spreading. And at least one Gospel account says that he did some healing there, not only teaching, but healing. We might ask ourselves, why did the thousand people come to our worship service? Perhaps they came because, I don't know, they heard there's fantastic music here led by a wonderful minister of music that has been sustaining this church for years and a choir that sounds beautiful and children who learn to sing and use their voice in church. And they have a world-class trio that is playing once a month in worship as well as a Ren Renaissance choir twice a year. That's very probable. In fact, many people have told me that's why they come to this church. Or they might say they have this new pastor there. I hear his sermons are kind of like a ping pong in a, in a, a, a pinball machine, but uh, he's stirring up some pots over there, and it's kind of interesting. Or they might say we have another pastor there who's a scholar. She actually just got back from an archaeological dig in Ephesus, and she's going to share it with the congregation. And she gives these thoughtful sermons about biblical history, and she runs a very kind and efficient church school among writing personal notes to people for pastoral care. Or they might say, as people often say to me, there is joy and spirit and connection in that congregation. They care about one another. 
And I have to tell you, that's the reason that interests me the most. I would love it if people said, well, I'm going there because I have some thoughts and doubts and curiosity about God, and those people let me bring it all there. My doubts, my questions, my answers, as well as my faith. Or perhaps they might say, I think over that church they're rehabilitating the name of Jesus so that it might be palatable again in the world because some people have taken it and used it for their own devices. That would excite me if that was the reason people came into church. Whatever the reason, they might come. And I have to tell you, as I thought about the feeding of the 5,000, there are many ways you can preach this text. You can preach it about the busyness of the disciples, so busy they didn't have time to eat. You can talk about what it means to be a shepherd, to lead from behind and nurture the sheep who have that scared deer in the headlights look about them. You can talk about it about abundant life, as one of our Lenten participants said this week, about that abundance that is always there, whether we pick it up or not. Or you could talk about it in terms of the balance between solitude and service. Certainly that was where Jesus was at in this story. You may not know this, but right before this, Jesus got word that his cousin had been beheaded by Herod. Jesus, when he comes into this story that Shauna read so beautifully for us, is grieving. You remember we talked about their mothers and the leaping in the womb back in December of John the Baptist and Elizabeth's womb. I don't know much about the relationship of these cousins, but I know they were kindred spirits. And Jesus needs some time alone. Jesus, if you didn't know, as one of my colleagues says, was an introvert. Paul was an extrovert, but Jesus was an introvert. He needed some time alone, and yet when he gets to the boat and it comes to the shore, he sees that they are sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion and he steps off and starts doing his work. Our curriculum this Lent encourages us to look at this text about the ways that God works in our lives and gives us vocation when we least expect it. And when I named this sermon two weeks ago, I didn't know what was gonna happen to me. I would not call it more than enough, that's another sermon, I would call it unplanned vocation because that happens to all of us just as it would next week if a thousand people came. It would up our sense of vocation just as it happened to the disciples in Jesus that they were not only going to be preachers and teachers and healers, but they were going to be caterers as well. <laughs> you know how this happens in your life, how you have an unplanned vocation. Sometimes a member of your family gets a disease that is uncurable, and you have to step it up. You didn't know that you could get people in and out of wheelchairs. You didn't know that you could be at the bedside. You didn't know you had nursing skills. You didn't know you could sit through long doctor's appointments and learn about prescriptions and medications. But God has given you a new vocation and you're gonna be a caretaker. Or maybe a young couple comes to each other and she says, honey, I have some news for you. And he says, what news? And she says, I'm pregnant. He says, how? I thought, and she says, I know, but sometimes and it wasn't planned. And one parent says, I'm not ready for this. And the other parent says, we haven't budgeted for this, but somehow God has offered the vocation of parenthood and you step into it. And all of a sudden, you become a vocation of parenting. Or you know how it works in a job change. You're a school teacher and they make some cutbacks in the school district and all of a sudden you're out of a job. But you've always tinkered with computers and software and you love that 
and somehow your avocation becomes your vocation and there's an opportunity that unfolds and another door opens. Or as I just saw a musical over at American Repertory Theater that illustrated this beautifully. It's a young out of work actor in New York City who performed in musicals who decided he needed to go do something to serve other people. And so he decided to go to Uganda and serve people there and help build a school. Now, he was typical, I can say this because as a former actor and singer myself, like a lot of the breed, he was very self-absorbed. He was very into his own talents, but he knew that he had to figure something out. Here he was as a gay man going to a place where homosexuality is punishable by death. And he helps to build a school only to find that the pastor was corrupt and actually using these volunteers to create cheap real estate that he would then sell. So Griffin is wandering the streets of Uganda and meets four young street youths like they have all over Africa who are orphans, who are poor, some of whom have HIV. And he begins befriending them and they are hungry for an education but they don't have the money to buy it. He's never been a teacher in his life, but he starts teaching them. And all of a sudden, now Griffin is doing a musical over at the ART that'll probably make it to Broadway about this story, and he has a program called Witness Uganda where he is funding now 40 students in Uganda with the offerings and the gifts that people here give. Or like my friend Peter, who studied long and hard to be a doctor. He first did medical school and then residency and then a postdoc and a specialization. His wife, Lisa, supported him through all that. And after he got through it, he said, you know, this is really boring me. I think I want to be a puppeteer. <laughs> and Lisa said, you are not going to be a puppeteer. Well, Peter now has simulated bodies that simulate what surgery is like. And you can go in and perform a surgery on the body with special technology that will let you know the risks and the possibilities involved before you actually do the surgery. He's actually traveling around the world right now revolutionizing medicine because he's a puppeteer and a doctor. We do this all the time with our children as they start to build things with blocks we think they will be an architect or a contractor or when they start to sing we think they will be a musician or when they start to cook and make things we think they will be a chef. We lay all that good stuff on them. One of the biggest challenges I had when I was an undergraduate chaplain at a local Ivy League school was that the students there felt like they were on a track. This one wanted to be an opera singer. And this one wanted to be a lawyer. And this one wanted to be an investment banker. And they thought if they stepped off the track, it would all fall apart. And it made me weep. Because I thought, here you are at one of the best liberal arts school in the world. And this is the one time where Genesis does not apply. It is OK to pluck promiscuously from the tree of knowledge. Go around and try it all out. And see what God has in store for you in these schools. And you might just surprise yourself, as any of us who've lived a while know, it's really true that life is what happens when you're making other plans. And if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. <laughs> it's all true. Unplanned vocation. Life throws us many things, caretaker, spouse, parent, teacher. One of our moms said she's a chauffeur, a detective. 
She's a, she is a, uh, she's a schemer and a planner and a cook and a maid. And the struggle, which we learned in our small group Lenten study, is that balance. How do we balance all these things? It becomes very hard. And they offered to us the words of Jack Fortin, who said that he thinks the balanced life and the concentration on how we keep this all in balance keeps us self-absorbed. That the alternative is actually not a balanced life, but a faithful life. A faithful life moment to moment to the God in whom we live and move and have our being centered. The perfect example of this is in Jesus, who found his time for solitude and service, who worked long hours despite the objections of his disciples, and at other times withdrew from people and tended to his own needs first for rest, reflection, and prayer. A life centered in God gives us identity as a child of God and a place to stand in a chaotic and compartmentalized and I would say unpredictable world. The Creator God is present in all we do. Christ is the example, the voice within us that guides the way we live. With God at the center of our lives, we know who we are and can begin to discover how our gifts are there to meet other people. Now balance, centered, faithful. The other option which someone offered is something that Martin Copenhaver gave out in a still speaking devotional, which is he said that this idea of balance, which Fortin calls self-absorbed, Martin says is not a biblical virtue. Balance is not a biblical virtue. The way of life that is commended in the Bible is more about rhythm than balance. The rhythm of the week, six days of work and one of rest, set within the larger rhythms of the liturgical year. Jesus spent time in intense engagement with the people around him in rhythm with time alone or with close friends. And then there's the basic spiritual rhythm of breathing in and breathing out. Indeed, as we will study in a few weeks, there is time for every matter under heaven, which is an ancient affirmation of the place of rhythm in our lives. Martin goes on to say that when we strive for balance, it is like standing on one foot. When we respond to the rhythms of creation, it's more like taking part in a dance. First one foot and then the other. And he asks, which one sounds more life-giving to you? Exactly. Martin prays that God would help us to know how to move our feet in the rhythmic dance of creation. First one and then the other. And if we lose our balance, help us to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and start all over again. Sisters and brothers, there are many ways that God shows us plans that we didn't have in mind. Here's what I know. The most important vocation, and this is a repeating trope of mine, that we have is to love our, the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and all our strength, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is the heart of all vocation. And there are plenty of sheep out there who need to hear that and need shepherds. May we respond when the call comes. Amen. Amen.